Well, I got checked back out in the Hornet and Super Hornet, so that was good. And then I, uh, so then I got this, hey, we want you to go out to Fallon to be the, the dad out at uh, the Naval Strike Near Warfare Center. And so I was a commander at Fallon uh, for about a year. And once again, I'm current, so I've been flying the, the Hornet and Super Hornet. And, you know, that's the, there's something really wonderful to be uh, a grandfather still getting into an airplane with ejection seats and the runners and going flying. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And then after about a year at in Fallon in Nevada, um, I wound up going to Fifth Fleet. I got a third star and was Fifth Fleet commander in Bahrain from 2010 to 12. And, um, you know, the, the Arab Spring and all the unrest and the stuff that was going on in the region, uh, that was... That was my tenure, and it was it was interesting. And it was challenging, but what a what an amazing uh, time to have a chance to serve. Tower to my station is release you runway four left wind zero four zero at five. Clear for takeoff. Sea tide. Altera zero eyes. We're clear for takeoff. Clear for the airspace. Five for check two. Well, sir, thank you again for joining me on the podcast. It's great to have you back. For those listening, um, episode with you back in January, we talked a lot about your MIG uh, shoot down from Desert Storm career. I mean, uh, in-depth discussion, but I think we really only scratched the surface and wanted to come back together and talk a little bit, maybe the latter half of your career, because obviously a long time in the Navy, saw a lot of things and uh, again, we just scratched the surface. So thanks for taking the time to jump back on here and, and chat a little bit more and share a few more war stories. You bet. You bet. Question that came in and they wanted to know about the FA designation of the Hornet because, you know, the Viper doesn't have an FA designation. The reason I gave best I could surmise, you know, when the Viper was designed, it was a lightweight day VFR air to air fighter. What has evolved into is a multi-role air-to-ground, air-to-air fighter. But at the time, the you know, Hornet is being developed and vying for competition. My guess is there was the strike fighter mission, and that had to be fulfilled. So the F-18 came out, the F-A-18, right out the get-go. Am I even close to it? or what? Yeah, you're, you're pretty close. The, the Navy was originally going to replace both the F-4 Phantom and the A-7 Corsair with the Hornet. Okay. So there was a fighter and there was an attack. And in the early days, they were actually, okay, one squadron's going to be fighter and another one's going to be attack. And it's like, you know what? There's not enough room on the flight deck of an aircraft (laughs) carrier to have an airplane that only does one thing. And so it was originally to replace a fighter and an attack airplane, and that was where the F-A, the fighter and attack, uh, idea came from. And so that's the only one that is formally F a, you know, 18. Um, but it was unique in that originally it was going to replace both airplanes. As it turns out, almost all the Phantom squadrons were replaced by Tomcats, except for the Phantom squadrons that came from the Midway, uh, over in Japan, those squadron, the, the Midway wouldn't handle, um, F-14s, nor would the Coral Sea. And so um, for those just, of us... Just so too the, small? Well, they were the they were the same class ship, but yeah, they were smaller ships. Um, so the Coral Sea and the Midway actually, after the transition to the Hornet 
uh, occurred were very much like the air wing of today. They were, we had four Hornet squadrons on Coral Sea. There were four Hornet squadrons, I think, on Midway uh, after the Tom, after the Phantom transition into the Hornet. So, um, anyway, that's interesting. That's how. Okay. It, uh, well, yeah, it was a good question because when you get down to the designations, yeah, you know, like K for tanker. I, again, I'm somewhere in the Pentagon in the basement someday, you know, back yeah. in the day, they're like, "Yep, this K's be for tanker," and yeah, yeah, so on and so forth. The one that I never figured out was when we start vying for new aircraft. Uh, and uh, maybe, you know, I, I've never, I've never been able to find it anywhere, but you know, we have the F-16, the F-18, there was a YF-17, I believe, mm-hmm. but then we have an F-117, you know, how we jumped around with the different naming designations. You know, there's yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, in the F-117, there's nothing F about that airplane. It's purely attack. Right. right. But it sounds better to say F than it does A, I guess. I don't yeah. know. Uh, I heard the rumor I heard with that one was there was no way you were going to get fighter pilots to go fly a attack or a bomber stink bug looking thing. And so they, they put an F in front of it. Who knows? I don't know. These I, are the things again. Those guys. There's, yeah. There's probably one, there's some office buried in the Pentagon that just has three individuals and, and somehow they're the one they're, they're the gatekeepers to that process. Yeah. So after desert storm, I wound up going to um, a joint job. Um, I was interacting with the, what we call a detailer, the assignment guy. And he goes, Hey, Mert, you got to go joint. That's, that's the thing that's required nowadays. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll go fly F-15s or Vipers someplace. <laughs> I, I'll be happy to fly an Air Force airplane. He goes, no, no, no. Purple, you don't understand. Purple joint. You don't understand. And so I wound up going to uh, a job at um, Supreme Head- Headquarters Allied Powers Europe, SHAPE in Belgium. And, um, you know, comparing January and February of 1991 to August of 1991, um, NATO takes holiday in August, except for the Americans. Um, it's, it was so relaxed. It was stressful. Uh, I mean, just <laughs> unbelievable. Superb holiday at public expense is another acronym that, uh, was kicking around there in terms of what, what state <laughs> really stood for. But uh, so anyway, I finished that. Oh, by the way, I didn't go to Tailhook 91 and I had a airtight alibi. I was at shape over in Belgium. So was, was 91 the year? Yeah. Yeah. It was the mother of all tailhooks. And I would have been there if I could. Right. Uh, actually, by the time I was there for a while, I, I learned how to kind of manipulate or make the system work to my advantage. Um, and so I went to I went to the Paris and the Farnborough air shows as a NATO rep. I mean, it was as for, the good, it was for the good of the alliance, you know. Yeah, that's no, good. But I had, you know, I had gotten most of the the notoriety. Nick Mangello, uh, had, I'd been aide to a three star. In fact, the three star that was in charge of naval aviation, a guy named Dick Dunleavy, a delightful, wonderful leader, uh, great guy. He was in charge of naval aviation still. So I'd been his aide back in 88, 89 timeframe. Now, 90, 91, come along, Desert Storm. So I was pretty comfortable. I knew the air boss really well. I mean, he was a he was a somebody I just did work really closely with. And so I felt like, you know what, Nick has been kind of overshadowed just because I was the my missiles got there about seven seconds earlier or something like that. And I've just, based on the seniority and the first, I, I had 
more notoriety than he had. And so it's like, you know what? It, it's okay. And plus, we had just barely gotten to Belgium as well. And it would have been kind of an unpopular decision on the home front to go, you know what? I'm going to leave you and the kids and go hooting and holler and have a great time in uh, in Vegas. And so I stayed back. I missed tail hook 91. Anyway. And, and then, yeah. And then subsequently you were able to stay in the Navy. So, you know, yeah, it, that was a, that was a pretty dark chapter. Um, and I, I I'm sorry but, it went the way that it did, but I, I wasn't there. Yeah. You know, the, the credit I've, I've never been a tail hook. Um, I see, you know, all my Navy buddies who are going to tail hook every single year, the piece of it for me that stands out again, never having been there. That was obviously a very dark, uh, time period, but the fact that tailhook still continues today that, you know, it overcame and yeah. you know, right of the ship, if you will, yeah. is, is impressive because it's normally a, it's a, that it's a great organization and yeah. a great, great group of, of people to hang out with. It really is. So um, it's good to see anyway. that's still alive. So I finished my joint tour. I came back and wind up getting slated to the same squadron I'd been in for desert storm. So BF 81, the Sunliners. um, I was a department head in 04, and I came back, and the way the Navy system works is you are the XO. I'm an 05 now, a commander. Um, you check in as the executive officer, you're number two, and then after a certain amount of time, then you fleet up and become the skipper. And so I checked into the back into the squadron um, in December of 83. Uh, I'm sorry, 93. So I'd gotten back in summer of 93. Now I check in and we're about to make Saratoga's final deployment. Uh, she deployed, she left the pier on her last deployment in January of 94. And so the airplanes are the same. The spaces are the same. There's a handful of people that may still be there, but you know, a squadron is just like a river. You know, you stick your finger in you take it out and there's a whole other group of people who have flowed through and then you go back in. And so there was a lot of familiar, but there was a lot of new just based on the fact that, uh, but it was kind of weird to be in the XO stateroom because that was, that had been, you know, the XOs and now I'm the XO. Anyway, we got over to the med and things are kind of heating up in, uh, in the Balkans in Bosnia, Herzegovina. And, they had put a 20-kilometer exclusion zone around Sarajevo, uh, no artillery or no uh, no ordnance kind of – some sort of a, a no-fire zone, if you will. Well, and there were a bunch of – NATO was involved. So the very first sortie that I flew into Bosnia-Herzegovina, I had a nugget wingman, call sign Rain Man, Rain. <laughs> Uh, Colin Farrar, a, a really, really good, good young guy. And so our job is to really provide jet noise and proof that we're there and we're kind of overseeing all the things that are going on on the ground. Well, there's about a 14 or 15,000 foot overcast. And so to fly below an overcast, you're at tactical airspeed, you're, you're moving, moving the jet around. And so you use up a lot of gas. So it's, at this point, it's like, okay, we now need to. So I'd, we'd made a couple of loops around the area. It's like, okay, we've done our job. Let's pop up and now save some gas as we're getting ready to go back to the ship. And then I get this chariot or Jehovah, whatever the uh, the chaotic director was, directs to me, you know, hey, you do this. 
go to uh, Ivory, you know, Ivory Six to, and check in with uh, Div, Disney Six Nine or something like that. You know, it was a Dutch fact on the ground in Sarajevo. So suddenly there's a huge wave of adrenaline. I had spent all my time in the brief kind of reassuring rain that it's going to just be a kind of a cakewalk. It's not going to be, you know, we're going to be ready, but, you know, it don't be too spooled up about it. So we check back in with this Dutch fac, a NATO fac on the ground in Sarajevo. And I'm saying, hey, this is me. What do you want? He goes, well, there's a firefight that's going on down down here, and using the runway length of Sarajevo Airport is one unit of measure. He directs my eyes over there close to the stadium. I got it. I got it. He goes, okay, I want you to simulate delivering ordinance. I said, what? He goes, I want you to pretend like you're dropping a bomb. And so I said, okay. Um, so I told Rain, I said, hang out high and just keep your eyes peeled and tell me if you see anything coming up. I was going to, didn't want to run him out of gas any more than uh, it would be me, not him, that would have to, to deal with the real gas problem. And so I rolled in and the fact comes up, you know, I make a nice mock dive bombing run and come off and uh, Jenkin putting some chaff and flares out and stuff. And he, uh, he goes, oh, it's great. They're not shooting at each other now. They're shooting at you. <laughs> what am I doing here? So I did, you know, spent probably, I don't know, 15 minutes doing that. And, uh, oh, by the way, the next day there was a horrible um, tragedy of a mortar attack or some something into a crowded market. And I remember reading the next day that, you know, there was this aggressive NATO airplane that was flying over Sarajevo. It's like, I was just doing what the fact told me to do. I didn't actually drop anything. But anyway, got back to the ship. It was it was the first tactical hop that I'd flown since Desert Storm. So it had been, what, two, you know, three years, I guess, since I'd actually flown in a kind of a tactical environment. So, you know, the whole... The whole thing, and then it wasn't—it wasn't that much longer. In fact, there were these Galebs later in later in February of '94. There were some Vipers that shot down some of these little Galebs uh, up north, and that was another story in its own right. But uh, we were in port when that happened, and it was like, oh, you know, there was—we we didn't have that opportunity to. <laughs> Oh, I mean, right place, right time. The, my last squadron, I might, we might have talked about this in the last podcast. I can't remember. I know I've, I've told this story, but while I was at Shaw, this is 2015 timeframe, the gamblers in our vault, we had the HUD tape from the 99 shoot down when it was a gambler shot down a MIG ah, over yeah. Kosovo and uh, dog Geezy, He came back and walked us through it. Right. But the funny part was him telling the story. You know, he was, he talked, you know, he, I trundled inside Mar and did all the thing, you know, all these tactical kind of, you know, blunders, you know, the fangs are through the floor, yep. you know, you can appreciate. And, uh, but he goes, the best part, he fast forwards through this story to the end. And there was a four ship of Eagles that were on the tanker. Number four was on the boom, just finishing. And he goes, that call came, they heard it. They, and the boomer, the boomer, he actually ran into is telling the story. They all jettison their tanks. They turn, they point, they go. You know, by the time they got to it, a Viper had shot down his MIG. You know, it's like, this is the one thing these guys exist for. You get a Viper doing their job. So. Yeah, that's awesome. That's yeah. good stuff. 
when was Scott O'Grady? Do you remember? I, I'm so completely- Scott O'Grady was shot down in uh, in '96. Okay. Or, that sounds. Yeah. yeah. Well, here here was the. I've got to think about that. It may have been later in '94. Tell me. It was it was in '90. I think it was later in '94 because we had been there in February March time frame, and in '96 I made the first cruise. On, as skipper now on Enterprise. So we had changed ships. I went from the oldest conventional ship in the Navy to the oldest nuclear ship in the Navy. Uh, and we came back and were operating again in in the Balkan, uh, you know, uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina. And so help me, the same drop gate point system that they used when we had been there two years before had not changed, you know. So you'd be at altitude, you'd strangle your your squawk, your mode Charlie, and just have, you know, mode four up, and the exact same system. And Scott O'Grady had been shot down in between those two times. I think O'Grady was shot down in the latter, later in the year of 94. I think it was about probably just, summer or fall of 94. I, think. I just looked it up. June 2nd, 95. Okay, 95. All right. So that is interesting. Um, because you definitely don't want to fly over the same point uh, over and over again and have some variety. I think we've at least learned our lesson uh, somewhat. Well, you'd um, think so. But here we were from February of 94. O'Grady was shot down in June of 95, and then we're doing this again in 96. And we were using the exact same – I, I didn't understand it. And I thought They'll never hit us twice. Uh, yeah, maybe so. <laughs> anyway. um. That's scary. Yeah. Flash forward. I'm uh, to go into the Iraqi freedom thing. I made, uh, well, I, I was, I left command of my squadron. I went to the Navy's legislative affairs uh, office in Washington. Uh, so real quick before you jump into that, the rest, of your, the other, the, the rest of that cruise Kosovo wise, was it mostly just overflight show was, of presence? It was just, just provide jet noise. Yeah, I'd be there. And then, oh, by the way, we wound up going through, actually it was in 96, we were flying in the Balkans, and then suddenly there's something that's heating up down in in, uh, in the Gulf. And on Enterprise, we hustled over, this is now in 96. Um, so this whole thing in in the Kosovo, it wasn't Kosovo for us, it was Bosnia-Herzegovina. Um, yeah. A little bit further in, I mean, closer in, if you will. But um, no, it was just... You know, you're kind of on the edge of your seat and you're you're kind of prepared and brief, but nothing ever really happened. Um, in 96, we were doing this thing. And then suddenly there's this, hey, get down to the Gulf. We went on Enterprise. She's the fastest ship ever. Um, and, I, you know, I think she swamped. We went through the Suez and down the Red Sea and around and back up into the Gulf. And then so I don't remember what the there was a crisis. We didn't actually wind up uh, delivering any ordinance, but there were. You know, that was kind of the nature of, you know, you're kind of the drive-by shooter. If there's a, if there's a crisis, they'll send you around. We were, there were some, some things that were kind of, kind of going on in Libya, for example. And, you know, the line of death had been defined. And so I was the guy that was, you know, in charge of the overall, this is 96 when I'm skipper. Um, Okay, we're going to do this freedom of navigation into the Gulf of Sidra. And so you got to put your ships and that sort of thing. Well, the whole 
discussion of, okay, well, if the Libyan Air Force comes out, you want the wreckage to fall in, in the Gulf of Sidra. You don't want to – but for you to have enough room to make consummate an intercept and not go into Libyan airspace yourself, then you've got to be – the, the whole arrangement geographically was difficult because we had these guys – you know, the, our ships are ahead of where the airplanes are, if you will – because you've got to be in a place to have enough room to, to actually consummate an intercept so that if you had to shoot them, the wreckage would fall into the into the Gulf of Sidra. Uh, anyway, that was an interesting challenge. But the what reason was the drive, ship, what was the drive to make sure that the wreckage fell into the, the Gulf of Sidra? Well, in other words, you don't want to violate. We're international water, uh, international airspace people. Right. And so we're exercising our right to operate in the Gulf of Sidra. And the ships had to go south enough to say that they're operating in there. But the airspace right. was such that, okay, if we're going to have an intercept here, you, you got to have some room. You can't go parallel to the coast and expect to have some sort of, you know, meaningful tactical uh, engagement. But, you know, <laughs> flying parallel to the coast, you got to be pointed at them to have a radar. So, anyway, it was an interesting uh, – nothing came of that, but that's kind of a, the nature of – uh, some of the deployments and and some of the, the things that you you're always in preparation for a, a contingency plan a what if you know right. you're looking at what would we do if throughout the you know apples and oranges said that a couple of times but the f-22 balloon shoot down yeah. i was going to give those guys credit because you know they needed they wanted that balloon according to open source in the news to fall inside the the ADIS. yeah Right. I don't know how fast the current is blowing that balloon, how fast it's moving, but assume it's probably 80, 90 knots yeah. of current, you know, wind blowing it. So by the time that, you know, the Raptors turn around, running down, the balloon is blowing east or, you know, west to east. They're running north to south. Like you got a pretty finite window to like hit that balloon and make it fall yeah. inside those waters. But those are the kind of things that when you're training, at least, for, you know, I remember as like a, especially a young guy, you're, you know, learning the tactics, black and white, more or less. But then when you start throwing geopolitics into it and this nation's border or, you know, this no fly zone, whatever it might be. And now you got to start building that into it can make things a little complicated. You're exactly right. I mean, you know, you when you start out flying, you're you're in a clean. Restricted area or something, and it's a 40 mile or 60 mile set or something, and you do your stuff, but then you go. Shoot, you go to the Gulf. There's no, there's no clean forty mile set. There, it's a very compressed uh, set of, you know, you wind up having to whole, accommodate a whole lot of uh, airspace and geopolitical considerations when you do that. Yeah, we had one mission. I didn't fly it. I mission planned it, but there was an instance escorting some B ones um, into into northern Syria. You know, this time period, Al Assad. Uh, or Assad, you didn't know, friendly foe. He still's got an Air Force. But basically, there's a certain time period where the B-1s, that they would be basically inside a weapons engagement zone instantaneously. So now you start going down the rabbit hole of what ifs. Well, if they scramble a fighter off this airfield, which is puts the B-1 in the weapons engagement zone, if they turn and point, is this them on a turnout for a departure? Is this them showing awareness to go shoot possible? the B one? Yeah, yeah, you know. So you start getting these uh, these problems that uh, make you think. Yeah. So interesting times. So yeah, 
anyway, I finished my legislative affairs tour in 99. I was fortunate. I was selected to stand up to be the skipper of the first skipper of a, the first Super Hornet squadron. So VFA-122 was resurrected. It had been the old uh, SPAD, the old Sky Raider rag back in the day, back in the <laughs> 60s. And uh, and then it had been the A-7 rag as well. And so when A-7s went away, 122, uh, you know, went away. And then when the Super Hornet came back, we stood it back up again. And so it was fun. I took the uh, – it was an interesting time because – the operational test and evaluation team at, at China Lake, VX9, uh, they wanted to do basically like a set of squadron workups as part of the test and evaluation. And so we were getting jets in VFA-122, and we had air crew. And so VX9 had the lead uh, and the operational test, but a bunch of us from 122 wound up flying in operational test and evaluation for the Super Hornet, and it was basically like, a, you know, we had a Key West debt going down and, and bumping heads with a bunch of Vipers. Uh, we did a red flag. Uh, we went out on the boat. You know, we did weapon. I mean, it was a, it was a full set of workups, um, you know, with the airplane. It was really it was really fun. Talk to me about the difference between the Hornet and the Super Hornet from your perspective. Um, so the ability wise, flying wise, et cetera. You know, if you look at the airplanes from a distance, they look pretty much the same. The Super Hornet is about 25% larger shadow on the on the deck. Uh, it's got more real estate. It's got more pylons. It's got, you know, it's like the computer that you bought in 1986 and then you bought another one in 1990 or you buy, you know, the keyboard and the screen may look more or less the same, but all of the innards are really changed. And that's that's kind of the Hornet was running out of room to grow, if you will. And so you were reaching the point where you're going to have to take something off to put it in. And, oh, by the way, we needed we needed more ability to carry more stuff and to bring back more stuff to the ship. And, you know, the original plan had been the A-12 was being developed back in the late, it was the end of the Cold War, um, and it was going to be the, the Navy's uh, stealthy airplane. It was a black program back then. And ultimately, it was canceled, uh, like in 1990 or 91. Uh, the Navy also had been continuing. They wanted to buy more F-14Ds. And the Office of Secretary of Defense, OSD, you know, kept taking that money out. And so basically, it turned. And then, of course, the peace dividend. So suddenly, every airplane is a, is a trade-off. And so... What they did, Congress had told the Navy, it said, okay, if here is your engineering, manufacturing, and development pot of money, ENMD. And if you step one nickel outside of this, we're going to cancel the program. And so that put a whole lot of focus into, okay, wow, we want everything that's good about the Hornet. It's reliable. It's maintainable. It, it works. We just want more capacity. We want more capability. Um, and so the plan ultimately was take the latest lot Hornet cockpit wise avionics radar. And that was the baseline for the super Hornet. And then in due course, we've got electronically scanned array radars and all kinds of new kit that w if we'd have tried to develop it the way that we normally would have, then we would have spent a lot more money, the you know, the, the technology wasn't necessarily mature, you know, kind of that. So they took a very conservative approach and it 
it stayed on budget and it stayed on um, on schedule, which is pretty remarkable for a for a DoD program. So it was. A, it's just now the Legacy Hornet is as referred to the A through D, especially the early ones. They were nimble. They were light. You could, you know, they were great BFM machines. Um, Super Hornet is a lot beefier. I mean, you know that there's more real estate behind you. Um, but they developed um, some really good software that essentially makes the the Super Hornet very, very hard to depart. I mean, and it's designed that way. So you can be way up high alpha and you can just go full left rudder, full left stick, and you can pirouette the airplane like that. In Legacy Hornet, it was much more of a technique rather than a procedure where you swap ends and <laughs> in a BFM thing. But you know, you could you could stop and bring it back up again in a real high alpha uh, kind of configuration. So it was it's a and then of course they took that and retrofitted it into the Legacy Hornets as well. So a lot of synergy between those two airplanes. Um, so I was Mister Super Hornet for a while. And so I was, I'd finished my tour as the skipper of VFA 122. I'm going to be a CAG. Um, and so I was tracking to go to the first air wing with Super Hornets. And there was a guy who wound up getting fired as CAG in air wing two. I won't bore you with those details of the names or anything, but uh, I wound up, instead of going to the air wing that was going to get Super Hornets, I wound up coming to CAG two, uh, which was fine. You know, Admiral Bowman, who was Air PAC at the time, he called me, you know, and he goes, hey, Mert, I'm sorry, you know, I, I need you over here in CAG 2 instead of CAG 11. He said, Admiral, they're still going to call me CAG. I'm I'm not unhappy. So you know, I'm I'm just glad to be here. Um, so anyway, the my DCAG deployment was on Constellation in 2001. And so it was a, quote, normal deployment to the region, to the Gulf. Um, it was hot. I mean, we were on a conventional ship in the summertime in the Gulf. It's a physical impossibility to cool the ship cooler than the water it's in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, so I wound up taking, taking command of Air Wing 2. We were out of the Gulf. We were coming home, and we pulled into Hong Kong in August of 2001. And I took command of Air Wing 2 at that point. Now, at that time, Connie's last deployment was going to be starting probably in about March or so of 2003. It's about an 18-month break in between. And so I thought that the only time I was going to really have command at sea as CAG was going to be this return leg at, you know, the last six weeks of this deployment. So I was a little let down by that. But, of course, we pulled into Pearl Harbor in uh, September 6th, 7th, 8th time frame. And I remember going to the Arizona and looking down there and seeing the names of all of those sailors that had died on Arizona uh, in Pearl Harbor. And I wondered, you know, those guys didn't have a clue on Saturday, December 6th, what was going to happen the next day. And I just had this thought. It's like, I wonder what we don't know. Or I wonder, I mean, I just had that kind of random thought. Well, 9-11 occurred on that Tuesday upcoming. And so we had originally... Um, we wound up all, there was a lot of, are we going to go back? We, we had just picked up what, what are called tigers, about 1200 friends and family of sailors coming home 
So we had offloaded all of our ordinance and all of, all of our ordinance except for, for a firepower demonstration. Uh, and we had 1,200 tigers. We ultimately wound up just steaming on home and, and coming home and getting ready for the what was turned out to be a very short turnaround. And so I got home. We got home at uh, the end of that week. We flew off. And that was in September, I don't know, 12th or 14th or something. And then we wound up turning around and ultimately deploying, excuse me, just a little bit over a year later. We deployed in October in a, you know, of 2002 for what turned into the uh, Iraqi Freedom Air Campaign. So we came back, you know, it's a pretty short turnaround, but we were focused. We knew what we needed to do. And uh, so now I'm CAG and we get back into the Gulf in December of um, of 2002. And there had been a predator shot down by the Iraqis. Um, and so back in the 2001 deployment, we would do these response options. You know, you'd be flying around. You're flying all over southern Iraq. This is uh, Southern Watch is what it was called. And essentially, Saddam couldn't fly any helicopters or any airplane. I mean, if he did, we'd, we'd, we'd shoot him down. Every now and then, there would be a surface-to-air firing event. They'd try to bag somebody. Uh, so there was – you were always – the fact that we, from 1991 until 2003 – over that whole period of time, we had all of these different airplanes from all these different organizations flying. We never lost an airplane over Iraq uh, for engine failure or for mid. Uh, we did lose an airplane after Iraqi freedom in a midair. We a couple of Marine Hornets had a midair uh, after you know in two thousand four or five time frame. Right, but um, anyway, these response options before. 9-11 had been kind of episode every now and then you might get to go blow up something, but not, not very frequently after the Iraqis had shot down the predator, our response, we did, I led the, the strike. It was a day after Christmas. And, you know, that's the first time I'd ever used GPS guided weapons for real. Um, so if you just look at the 12 years between 1991 and 2003, as I said, the jets all looked the same, more or less, but the capabilities we were carrying JDAMs and JSALs and AMRAM, uh, all of these new weapons that just made the airplane so much more lethal. Um, it's crazy to see the difference. And I'll, to piggyback a little bit, you know, my deployment to OIR, our squadron dropped the most precision guided weapons of any F 16 unit. Mm -hmm. The next squadron beat that, the next squadron beat that, and just kept, you know, going and going. And our squadron commander at the time, he was talking about doing hot pits. In Saudi Arabia, we're getting gas, loading up six bombs, going, hit a target, come back, hot pit, load up again, go and do it three times. Yeah. You know, trip turn, just just dropping dumb bombs, dive glides. Yeah. And, you know, here's uh, an interesting, we used to, for our planning consideration, we used to use how many sorties per target. And in a given target complex, you'd have all these different aim points or dimpies, as they were called. I think they've come up with a new thing now that they call them. But a dimpy, desired mean point of impact, think of it as an aim point. How many different aim points? Um, and so you would you would kind of do the strike planning in accordance with how many, how many sorties per target are we going to go after? How are we going to build this thing in such a way so that we don't have 
midair collisions or, you know, you know, you just think through all of the, the what ifs of how do you get these bombs on target in the shortest amount of time without smacking into each other. Uh, but these are all dumb bombs in Desert Storm era. I, I employed, I shot harm. That was a smart weapon. I employed a, uh, a walleye. That's a smart weapon. But everything else was was dumb bombs. In flash forward now to 2003, um, every single sortie that I dropped ordnance on, it was a smart weapon. It was a JDAM or a JSAL, a Maverick, something uh, that was so big change. And so then we changed from how many sorties per target to how many targets per sortie, because now you can you're carrying four bombs on your jet. You can put four different aim points and hit them. Uh, it's all a function of your ability. So big sea change in terms of the precision and the lethality and the capability of the, the airplanes, even though they more or less looked the same. One thing that, that did happen while well, my Tomcat squadron, uh, VF-2, uh, the Tomcat did not have JDAM capability at the beginning of the deployment. But through some heroic efforts, they finally got the software and they got this. And so our, J, our, our Tomcats finally were able to drop uh, J weapons, J dams, actually, um, when, once we went into combat. But that, was, that wasn't a capability that the Tomcat even at that point hadn't uh, had but some real hard work and some very good good efforts to get the tomcat capability to drop jdams yeah no small feat for sure yeah so uh anyway we got into the region i so the day after christmas of 2003 uh i wound up dropping ordnance for the first time in anger for a long time and um and we kind of know I, there's another big difference. In Desert Storm, none of us had gone in country ever until the first day of the war. I mean, and in Iraqi freedom, all of us had flown dozens of times into Iraq in terms of the Southern Watch. So we knew the geography. We, you know, it, we were on a completely step plane higher awareness of where things were and how things, you know, how to get in and out and uh, just a much higher level of, of uh, understanding of the, the geography and the, the layout of, of everything there. Um, as the war appeared to continue to draw near, um, they finally designated us, Constellation, as we were going to be the night carrier. And it was only going to originally just be a temporary thing, but it was a, we changed our body. We got to sleep a little bit longer, a little, you know, and then you basically, by the time we get into combat, we are waking up at, um, 1700 having breakfast, a breakfast meal. And then we start flying at 2100 and fly through the night and then till about 10 o'clock in the morning and then knock off and sleep during the day. And it made it very good for the people who needed to do things in the daylight when the ship was out of flight ops in terms of helicopter maintenance and a bunch of stuff that um, it was hard. It was really it does something to your mind when you're coming back from a hop and you watch the sun come up over a run. Um, you know, it's just but that's what we did. And it was originally it was going to be a temporary thing. So. The Admiral came to me and to Fozzie Miller, who is the CEO of Constellation, said, hey, um, 
do you guys want to go back to the day schedule? And of course, both of us are, <laughs> our tongues are hanging out and say, yeah. And he goes, okay, well, why not pulse your, pulse your crew, see, see how everybody's doing with this. And unanimously, all of the maintainers, everybody that makes things happen is like, oh, no, no, this is, it's cooler at night. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just a better, better thing. And so we, we were the night carrier for the entire uh, duration. And originally, there was this, um, there was a plan. It was going to be something new and different. We were going to actually have an opening strike in the daytime. And then it, they thought, nah. Maybe we don't, yeah, maybe we don't want to do maybe that. Maybe we don't want to do that. And so that's how I became <laughs> the strike lead and, and mission commander for the opening strike. We were the night carrier. And then the, so the big gorilla opening strike uh, came to us. And I, I was gagging. That was my job. So, you know, right place, right time. Um, yeah, one more time. That, yeah, that's, that's all about right place, right time, right qualifications. I always say, though, too, night train's the right t- train <clears throat> unless you have to see the sunrise. If you see the sunrise, it's no bueno. I like flying at night doing night ops, yeah. but if you have to see the sunrise, it's over. Well, I tell you, Talk to- I watch the sunrise more times in that six-week period from a <laughs> cockpit, and it's, come, it's coming up over Iran and the mountains of oh. Iran. And But if you're on goggles, you know, you're looking on goggles, you can see the pre-dawn glow you go under the goggles it's like it's black as pitch um anyway but yeah when i've i've had time just staring you know just blinded with the sun rising going going east or yeah, going eastbound to the tanker um talk to me about the the opening strike and the night what what went into that how much of a joint effort was it what, what did it look like yeah um I'm going to reference back to Desert Storm for a minute because it'll help understand. It'll help illustrate some of the progress that we made just in terms of connectivity and mission planning. Um, you know, the ATO, the air tasking order, back in 1990 and 91 was literally flown. We'd fly an S3 into Riyadh, and they'd come out with a disc, and then we'd helicopter it over to the Kennedy, or they'd helicopter it over to us on Saratoga. Uh, flash forward now to 2002, 2003. I'm now the, the strike lead. We're putting it together. We've got Cipernet. We've got secure comms. And I'm talking to the uh, the B2 guys at Whiteman or the F-117 Bubba's and everybody. You know, So we've got F-15Cs. We've got Vipers. We've got um, the RAF, those guys. Uh, we've got the land-based uh, EA-6Bs. We've got Marines ashore. We got three carriers, um, a lot of people and a lot of. And so early on when we started before, prior to the Iraqi freedom buildup, if you will, uh, is typically only one carrier in the Gulf. Well, you can manage that just with your own within your own lifelines. But then once you have two or three. uh, So we had Lincoln, we had Kitty Hawk and we had Constellation. And so we built these three-dimensional highways in the sky of getting to this point and how to get to the tanker, all calm out. I mean, everything is you launch and you go and you know the tankers are going to be there over Saudi Arabia. Um, but in in terms of the coordination, I discovered that the, the B-2 guys want to go a lot higher than I thought they did. And the, and the F-117 guys wanted to go lower. And so now it's all right. I don't want to put a bomb through somebody's wing. And we also had preemptive jamming and we had a lot of harm to suppress. I mean, this was truly 
the ultimate enemy air defense. I mean, it was a, a, a weapons engagement zone that was just black with envelopes. Now, had they been exercising their equipment? Were they at the top of their game? I don't think so, but you still don't ever, you know, you, you got to honor the threat. And so a lot of jamming, a lot of standoff kind of uh, ordinance. And then as we're getting closer in for the people that are actually delivering JDAMs, you know, downtown or in, in that vicinity, um, it was a probably about a 40-minute precision ordinance demonstration that's pretty <laughs> remarkable. Um, on goggles, you know, without the goggles, you, we came out of this overcast as we're now coming up. There's a big jet stream from the west. And so there's, you know, you always build a kind of a dog leg so you can either cut the corner or you can extend, you know, just to get your t- your time on target. But as we came out of this big overcast from, from Saudi Arabia, you can see the, the, uh, the eagles over there high, you know, streaking in there. And on goggles, you can see a little bit, you know, there's somebody's, some shepherd's fire or something, but there's not much out there in in Western uh, Iraq. So we're coming in from the, from the South um, with a pretty, pretty stiff jet, jet stream at altitude. And then it, we come out of the, that overcast and Baghdad's about the size of Detroit. And it was very, very well lit on goggles. It was pretty dim as, you know, the naked eye, but as we get closer in and closer in, then finally, boom, things are starting. The early standoffs, stuff is starting to hit. And at 2100, it was just like, I mean, it was like the, uh, it was like the Super Bowl at the end of the game with all the flashing and everything. I mean, there's just uh, things popping. It's all ballistic. Uh, I don't think that they had any hard locks, but I mean, there were, there were missiles that would come up as we're getting, you know, closer to delivering our ordinance coming up through your altitude or bursts um, enough to keep you moving the jet, I guess is, is another way to put that. So I employed my my ordinance, boom, boom, boom. First time I'd done like three <laughs> three releases from one jet at the same time. And as I'm coming off, we're, so I'm in the southern suburbs of Baghdad when I'm coming off target. And up in the probably around 28 or 30 maybe, 1,000 feet. So I'm in a right turn starting to flow and we're going to get back into our egress block. And I'm looking down on goggles and there's just this grid square of little sparkling lines. And it's like, what is that? And I kick the rudder. I'm standing in a bank here while I'm I'm looking at it. And it's Iraqi troops that are arrayed on grid squares, I mean, blocks and blocks of land just shooting up. Uh, it would be a really, in fact, we lost a helicopter down a, a little bit south of Baghdad, an Apache. They were ready for low altitude ingress. And, you know, I looked at it and it's like, you know, this would be a really bad night to go low. Um, so, and then we came out and of course, the whole timing of when this, um, when the actual Air campaign starts versus the ground campaign, A day, G day. Uh, you know, in Iraqi, in, in Desert Storm, we had a six week air campaign and a hundred hour ground war. In fact, it, there were concerns that 
okay, if we now start this air campaign and we're kicking his ass, he's going to torch oil wells and do all kinds of bad things to his infrastructure. So it's like, so actually you could see the Marines and the, and the army guys going in through uh, in and around Kuwait into Iraq early on. I mean, that night. And we had some soft guys that were working out West. There was, there was a lot of activity prior to a day, you know, the air campaign uh, kickoff. But uh, so the number of, you know, in the old days, you'd put together a very well-coordinated strike. Everybody has an aim point, timeline, you know, really um, kind of the, the last of perhaps the Cold War era tactics in terms of you got this big old gorilla that's going in there and, and you know, crushing in temporal time their air defenses in such a way to get airplanes in and get airplanes out. But after that, you know, it was almost all on call and, you know, close air support and all kinds of um, much more reactive and uh, responsive, if you will. Uh, When Baghdad was, we had the big thunder run that went into Baghdad, I think it was in about April 8th or 9th. It was hard to keep tabs of which day it was <laughs> when the yeah. when the number of your day changes at your midnight or, or noon body right. time. Um, but I was flying on that, and there was a high overcast of about 20,000 feet or so. And so you're just nipping in and out of this overcast, and then there's some warthogs that are buzzing around. I mean, it was it was really chaotic. And I'm talking to this, this Army FAC, or JTAC, I guess I should say, and he goes, okay, you got the the runway at Baghdad International. That's one unit of measure. Go north one unit. Yeah, but there's a tree line. I want you to put your you know your LGB in there. Okay. And then I'm just getting ready to pickle. And he goes, abort, abort, abort. You know, they're friendlies in there. And I was like, okay, I didn't, I didn't, you know, drop that. But it was just really chaotic right over Baghdad that night because there was just a lot of but almost every Hop thereafter was in in direct support of of the ground troops or doing something to uh, to either suppress. We were the early campaign. We were going after things like frog feet, you know, these surface to surface missiles and things that could hurt us uh, from a, a distance. But you know, there were also there were some blue on blue. Uh, we had patriots that shot. There was a patriot that shot down a, a hornet off of Kitty Hawk, and those. Patriot guys were alone and unafraid. They were out there unconnected to a bigger picture. And apparently they had a little hit of a something. And then the Hornet that was over at Big Lake, Habania or something, that shows up. And so it shows that he's going like, you know, Mach 10 or some like a like a ballistic missile or something. So he was shot. There was an RAF. Uh, there was a tornado, I think, that was a blue and blue. So um, at that point, as CAG, I said, okay, boys, we don't have anything to fear from the Iraqis right now, but we do from our own patriots. Uh, it's time to leave mode, all modes and codes. At least, at least when you're going in, okay, you can be strangled. But as you as you turn around, all modes and codes don't don't hesitate to you know do everything possible to identify yourself as a friend. Like um, it was a it was a I, hectic time. That's. 
Yeah, it's wild. It's scary to think about, too. I had heard the story about the Hornet getting shot down the Patriot. We'd incorporate the Patriot into a couple red flags. I'm sure it had been done prior to, to my time there. But I got a, a tour of the Patriot battery in my last deployment. Yeah. And again, not to knock knock them. Grateful for what they do. But my exposure to it, it was some 18-year-old kids who basically just have a big red button, and it's a like black and white. Yeah, light. well, it's, like a, it's Pac-Man technology. It, it looks like the yeah. 80s. Yeah. And oh, that's a thing. Shoot it. I mean, there's no yeah. like we're going to use thought process. I mean, and this is being this is a general statement. I know it's not true, but yeah, to a certain degree, there's I mean, yeah, Pac-Man technology. And then you got young kids that uh, are not necessarily going to have the full yeah, or, situational or just, awareness or just sleep deprived. You know, who knows? I, I mean, there are lots right. of lots of reasons. Um, So all of the I flew in Desert Storm, I think I flew 18 sorties that I delivered ordinance. Um, in Iraqi freedom, I flew 14 sorties of which I dropped ordnance on the first 11. And then the last three, there was no, no place to drop, drop any bombs. So, um, the more, the most, inter- the first time I didn't drop, that'd be my 12th sortie. It's in the daytime. I'm flying with a, an experienced, uh, Lieutenant commander department head from one of the Hornet squadrons. And we're going up in, we'd already taken, um, uh, Al Najaf, a couple of weeks, two or three weeks ago. I mean, that was early. It's down south. It's you know, uh, kind of between. There's Baghdad and Al Najaf, and then there's Basra. I mean, they're not in a line, but you know. Anyway, Najaf was yesterday, two weeks ago, kind of stuff. And so we get hey, check in with Diablo six nine on such and such frequency, and so, and then we plug it in. It's like. Oh, that can't be good. I mean, we, we're going set. We're going to go to Anajaf. Uh, so we check in with this guy. Well, he has. He said, "Okay, I'm distributing humanitarian re- uh, relief supplies, and I've got almost a riot on my hands. So I just need you to distract these people and get their attention." And and so I was like, "Oh, we can do that." And he said, "There's no threat." I was like, "Okay, yeah, yeah, I believe you." Um, but we get down and did some um, mission essential flat hatting for about three or four passes. Um, Najaf, it's like out of the Bible. I mean, it's just everything is an old brown colored, and there's this enormous cemetery north of town. I mean, it, Najaf is one of the the Shia uh, holy places, but. Down there, raging, did a pylon turn around this mosque uh, minaret. I mean, it was uh, it was pretty fun flying. Still, at the same time, you're going, oh, man, I, I sure hope that this is really. And he goes, oh no, that's good. Diablo six nine was happy with what we were doing, and they're like, okay, I'm on my. I, I've just gotten to the point where I need to go home, and he goes, okay, thanks. So that was that was the end of my bomb dropping career at that point. I uh, didn't know it, but. Now we're coming back. And uh, so the last few sorties going in there, we're armed, you know, we're ready and we're capable. But um, the, the, the need for any delivered uh, ordinance had had gone away. Had the Army Marines, have they taken Baghdad at that point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, obviously, you know, now you look back, I mean, gosh, it's been 20 years, uh, which is, I mean, wild to think yeah. about. But that time period, obviously, shock and all kicks off, take Baghdad, and then it's kind of a lull 
Um, you know, then the insurgency kicks back up. Yeah. So I guess that period you guys had obviously ousted Saddam or he's on the run. Right. right. But it's, it's relatively common. I, I, and I say again, relatively welcomed, um, you know, the coalition presence there on the ground, but obviously that, that, that changed. Well, over actually, time. you know, if you think about this, we, in 1991, there had been no, uh, there were restrictions on the Iraqi Air Force and, and Army operations, but we did not prevent them from flying helicopters because they had made this case that we need it for delivering supplies and so forth. So Saddam really, uh, he came down hard on the Shia down south, the Sunni, uh, I'm sorry, the Shia uh, Arabs, the Marsh Arabs, and he cut off the water. I mean, and so we had sort of, we, the coalition, we, the U.S. had like, hey, you know, you should revolt, revolt, you should rebel against Saddam. And then it was like, nah, never mind, we're not going to do that. Um, so it's not completely unsurprising that there was a, there wasn't all of that. I mean, everybody was happy, Saddam. Oh, let me rephrase this. All of the Shia and the Kurds were happy that Saddam was gone. The Sunnis were very sorry because they had been they had been the ones that were you know Saddam was a, uh, a Sunni and he treated his Kurds you know he's he gassed the Kurds back in the 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 eighties uh, he treated the uh, Shia atrociously and if you were a, a Sunni by and large you had status and and wherewithal so. You can't appreciate how broken Iraq was, and I think kind of still is, but it's all because of Saddam. Uh, he was the, you know, he had everybody in the West convinced that he had weapons of mass destruction. And that's how you stay in power. <laughs> Even if you don't, you act like you do, and you drop hints that he does. And so everybody's like, oh, gosh, he really probably does. And, you know, every. It's pretty easy to be critical of of Bush 43's decision to do this uh, until you go back and you go, well, if there were some bad guys that had the opportunity to get their hands on weapons of mass destruction that we thought the Iraqis had. Now you look back and it's yawn, yawn. And gosh, what a ter terrible decision. If we knew that he didn't have weapons of mass destruction, I don't think we would have invaded. We thought he did. And so did the U.N. and so did the rest of the world. I mean, there was pretty strong. Um, case in terms of he he had gassed his own people um so but it really did upset the balance of power in the region um so when saddam went away um we're guilty in my opinion of mirror imaging it's like okay as soon as we can get an election these people with purple fingers and uh okay democracy's set in it's like no that the soil in that region is not does not support self-government um and I'm sorry, it, the soil in Western Europe and in the United States, that turned out a different way because there was a different culture and a different soil for for freedom to, to begin to grow or, or representative government. Uh, that, yeah. that still, maybe it'll come. I hope it does. Um, you know, before there was oil, there was water. Iraq is, is the land of two rivers, Mesopotamia. And it's a fertile, verdant, you know, with people who, and the, the Iraqis are clever people. Don't, don't, uh, they were led by a real, uh, <laughs> a real loser, 
but um, yep. they they have water. They've got smart people. I mean, the rule of law kind of came out of Babylon back in the day. Um, the concept of zero. I mean, it, it's a it's got in antiquity terms. It's it's got a huge history, um, but it upset by ta- by knocking Saddam off. It upset the relative balance of power. You know, because now over in Iran. It's really emboldened and in, 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 and strengthened in a way uh, the whole uh, Iranian influence in the region. I mean, Hezbollah and Lebanese Hezbollah in, in uh, Lebanon, um, Hezbollah is basically an Iranian-sponsored terror outfit. And they've been, they've been able to proliferate a lot more than they would have if Saddam had still been there. So... Um, I was part of, you know, stopping him in 1991 and then helping topple him in, in 2003. Um, I wound up going to the White House after my CAG tour as the deputy director of the military office. And then I, um, I got to, I, I made flag and I became the director of the military office. So I went with W on a couple of trips, one to, uh, Iraq and another one, later on to uh, Afghanistan. But here was a here was a bit of a cosmic uh, thing. I'm on Air Force One. We're going over Mosul. We're going into Iraq. And this is in 2005, I think. And the guy named Mark Tillman is the president's pilot in Air Force One, a Marine, or a, uh, an Air Force colonel, great guy. Uh, and we do this honking. We're at 20,000 feet, like a chrome-plated crowbar. We're coming down, and then he breaks his rate of descent, makes a circling turn, and lands. Boom. And then he, as soon as we got off, he scooted down and, and went down to a uh, an alternate field away from Baghdad. But as we were coming in, one afternoon, I had it was well, actually it was in the morning, and we had been looking for some of – the Iraqis knew that we wouldn't destroy the infrastructure, the bridges and the overpasses and stuff. And so they were hiding some of these surface-to-surface missiles under their overpasses and bridges. And so one day in April of, of 2003, I was we were looking and looking, trying to see if we could see anything underneath overpasses, you know, and if you could get down and you could find it and not destroy the bridge, if, if, and if. Anyway, I got to know the northern part of Iraq, of ba- of uh, Baghdad that day. And now, flash forward a few years, and I'm now in Air Force One in the exact same airspace, looking at that, oh, there's that infrastructure that I was looking at from the cockpit of a Hornet. So I was like, that's, that's pretty amazing here to be in Air Force One Surreal. now looking at uh, a, a spot that I'd been trying to figure out where some surface-to-surface missiles were. And then in um, in 2006, I left the White House to go be the, the senior Navy uh, guy in Iraq as a one-star. And I do, I do, before we jump to back to Iraq, curious about the White House. When you're, um, are you coordinating all of the logistics for the military that supports the White House when you're in that role? Yeah, all, all military support to the president is is part of your job description. Uh, and, okay, so like Mar- Marine yeah, One, Air Force One. It was very much like being a CAG. 
You know, I, okay. I had nine squadrons or eight squadrons in a detachment. As the uh, director of the White House Military Office, I had Air Force One, Marine One, Camp David, the medical unit, transportation guys, huge communications agency. I mean, it's um, it's a multifaceted, lots of moving parts uh, kind of thing. And the president is commander in chief 365 days a year. Um, and so, you know, he's he's got other roles. He's the head of state and he's the head of his party and he's the uh, but he's commander in chief 24, seven, 365. And so he always has to have, you know, he's got a an, an aide with him that's got the football and all of the stuff that goes into the uh, the function of being the president. And so it was a, I, I quit. It's sort of like juggling crystal. Uh, as as long as you don't drop anything, it's fine. <laughs> no big <laughs> nothing, deal. No pressure. nothing like being in, you know, seeing the uh, forty three. There was a secure call between uh, him and uh, between W and um, Tony Blair that failed, and I remember the glare. I mean, Waka, the White House Communications Agency's mine, and I kind of had the the laser spot on my forehead. And one other time. You know, the H3 is a magnificent, reliable old girl. Uh, the first H3 landed on the South Lawn in September of 1961 in the, in the Kennedy Jeez. administration. And if you could point to any other president or any other organization that the last H50, or the last H3 was built, I think, in 1973. And so the way you mitigate it, it's not unsafe. Uh, is another way of putting it, which is um, that's why I have gray hair. Um, <laughs> one day, <laughs> the H3 lands on the South Lawn. The president's going to make a few remarks. And so they had to shut the APU down. And he made the remarks. And now it's like, no, APU won't start. Oh. <clears throat> and so there's always a contingency. They take him on a motorcade uh, out to Andrews or wherever he was going. And then, of course, as soon as he left, the APU started fine and, you know, where they flew. But, uh, you know, things like that that just um, keep you on your toes. It was. Go ahead. How so t- talk to me, too, about flying on Air Force One. I know you were really busy and doing a different job. But what was it like? What is it like well, flying around on Air Force? First One? of all, I only traveled with the president whenever there was a largely military mission. I'd go with him, for example, to the NATO summit in Istanbul or uh, these trips to Afghanistan or, or uh, Iraq. And so you have your own seat and it's, it's assigned to you and it's very nice and everything is well organized. And um, you know, the, the senior enlisted uh, of the air force, he wanted to, he, you know, air force one, that was the highest, Air Force One and Marine One, those are both high, high performing organizations. And you get really the top of the line, everybody. Um, there aren't that many people who really know how to work on a 747-200, especially with all the kit that it's got on it. And so people can make and do make, Air Force members can spend a lot of time as part of Air Force One. The senior enlisted uh, what do they call him? Um, like uh, the chief or the. Uh... Anyway, I was at 
I was yeah. in, I was in constant yeah. tension and conflict with big Air Force because they wanted to take people away from Air Force One and send them to Korea or send them to, you know, that's what you do in an Air Force career. And it's like, I, I would have to not W himself, but my boss over in the West Wing, I'd say, hey, they really want to, they were, you know, and from where I sat, they were trying to make Air Force One look like a C-5 organization in Dover, you know, and it's like, that's good for everybody else, but it's not good. Um, so it was a fortunate thing. I mean, as the Bush administration, my predecessor was a was a Navy one star, and then I was a one star. I, and so we'd both been 06s and then made flag and, and became the directors. And the Bush administration liked that because we could push back against the Air Force and not hurt our careers, <laughs> you know? Right. So, but. Because the, and the Air Force One is flown. I think Colonel Tillman, there's a Nat Geo documentary that was done when he was the, the pilot, but he is the pilot or, you know, He's whoever it. is designated. That, like, that's yeah, it. That's, which is kind of wild to me. I figured, you know, it'd have been a crew rotating through, but no. no it's, it's him. As long as, I mean, it's, if W liked him and he did, then. Tillman was there and, uh, and he's just a marvelous guy. You'll really, if you ever have a chance to talk to him, he'll, he'll, he'll fill you with some good, good stories. Uh, and obviously they've got, they've got other, you know, the presidential airlift group is a, is an elite group and they do a lot of the, uh, all of the, the really highfalutin uh, movement of, of distinguished visitors around, but yeah, whole nother world. So now, I was trying to figure out a way to grace. I, I could have stayed at the White House until the end of the Bush administration. They liked me. I liked them. But I knew that I, I needed to get back to the Navy um, because if you – most people think, oh, all you're doing is you're going to social events. And, you know, it, it was a at work, at work by 6 or 6.15 in the morning and home, you know – late in the evening. That was the tour that Priscilla learned how to make Manhattans for me. You know, it's like, is this a Manhattan night? And it goes, yeah, it is. Have one ready <laughs> when I get home. But, um, so I was trying to figure out a way to gracefully leave without saying I didn't, I mean, I just wanted to get back to the Navy and that they, they were as a new one star, like, okay, uh, we've got you slated to go be a strike group commander. And it's like, I'm all over that, you know? And so, Anyway, shakes out. I wind up being tagged by the CNO to say, "Hey, go to Iraq." And this is this is 2006. Now, I was busy with my day job. I wasn't really paying that close attention to what was going on in Iraq. I mean, I knew it was hard, but you know that was kind of an army, and you know those guys. So suddenly, I find that I'm going to Iraq, and so as the senior Navy guy, and you talk about a fish on a bicycle. I mean, I. I parachute in there, not literally, but I go into <laughs> a multinational force in Iraq, the headquarters. My original job was uh, as the deputy for strategic effects, strategic effects being all things non-kinetic. So like okay. finances, rule of law, electricity, plumbing, sewage, utilities, all the things that make life go on. Our strategic effects. And I told them, How tight are you with the State Department there? I figured you know that feels like a a State Department or NGO. One would think. 
type blood charge. Anyway, so my two-star army boss, a guy named Bill Caldwell, great guy. I said, boss, I don't know anything. I know how to blow those things up. Uh, and in fact, I've done more than my fair share of, of blowing things up in Iraq than most anybody I know. And it's kind of appropriate. I should be here to try to help them stitch this back together again. Um, I don't know anything about them, but I'll, here's what I bring to you. I know how to lead. I know how to build a team and I'll learn all the rest. So I wound up going to um, a city council meeting in Fallujah in December of 2006. It wasn't the Star Wars bar, but it was pretty close. Um, really bizarro in, in Fallujah, downtown. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll cut to the, the chase. I wind up, uh, there were all these visiting firemen that were coming over. And so General Jones, who was a former commandant and former Yukon um, commander, he made a trip. And so I'm escorting or I'm with him in some of this. And we went out to the Jordanian border out west and up to the Syrian border. I mean, we were, he was just checking them, you know, seeing how things were. So here were another couple of surreal. So we flew into Al-Assad and I blew up a MiG-29 on the ramp in February of 1991. And so it was a surreal thing to get out of that C-130, which was the bureau number was like 1961 or 62. It was an old guard C-130, but it flew fine. Don't, don't get me wrong. But to walk over and be standing on a place that I've bombed before, that was, that was kind of That's surreal. Wild. And then we get into a helicopter and we're flying out West and we're in an H, uh, we're in H-53, a Marine, a Marine bird. And here we are. We're flying over H-3, which was my target on the first day of Desert Storm. And I asked the, I, the, I went up to the cockpit and I said, hey, can you guys just lean a little left here? H-3 is right up here. And uh, it goes, yeah, yeah, sure. So we flew over to 6,000 feet at 130 knots or something. And once again, there was just this bizarro feeling of I've, I never got that low. But there's H3, and I dropped bombs on that, and, you know, I had a pretty high pucker hop that day. Um, anyway, there were a couple of those things that just you can't make them up. You know, it was uh, kind of a surreal thing. That, yeah, that's still, you know, I go the Al-Assad piece. I've told that story a couple times. You know, my experience with it. <clears throat> Uh, so one, my, my dad and brother, both contractors in Iraq about the time frame that you're there. So it's probably my time, but they're doing fire firefighters, one, one in Kirkuk, one in Baghdad bouncing around. But then, you know, fast forward, uh, the Iraq war is over and then it's operation here resolve. ISIS has popped up, you know, Al-Assad by the end of the war, you know, there was there at one point there were tankers there. There was a swimming pool. I dropped. Uh, a bomb right outside the gate of Al-Assad. But my dad at this point, he's back in the States. He's like, yeah, hey, you know, I might go back into the contracting world. They're looking for people at, they need Al-Assad. And I tell him this story. And then I also, there's like YouTube videos at this point of ISIS inside Al-Assad. And I mean, uh, no kidding, firefight doing it. And my second to last combat sortie, we treated Al-Assad that if you, if you had an engine problem, if you went in there, you you would treat it like a downed airman. The other jet is not going to land. It's going to provide support and hang high. And my second to last sortie, 
we had an A10 that had through a fan blade through the motor on the mm-hmm. tanker. His wingman has to jettison all the storage because he's got no gas. They both limp into Al Assad. We're you know right over right there and you know escort him in. But it's funny. It's like even not fun. It's not funny. I mean, but you know the fact that like how this thing has ebbed and flowed back and forth and just kind of you hear these different stories. And I mean, I've flown over H3 yep. uh, on, on the way in there. Yeah, you know, it's it's still yep. there. It's kind yeah. of. Well, you know, talking about all Assad, um, there was a guy. This is back in Desert Storm, but it's a it's a story that's worth telling because we were dropping bombs on all Assad. It's a daytime strike. Nineteen, you know, this is nineteen ninety one Desert Storm, and there was a guy that was on the admiral's staff, an aviator, and he had found out that he was going to come to VF eighty one as a department head, and so I went to the skipper. And said, you know, and he was current. I mean, he was day night. I mean, he was day CQ'd current uh, and he could fly the jet. And so I said, hey, Skipper, it'd be good if if we can get him a couple of sorties, you know, just so that when he gets here and all of the salty JOs are all saying, you know, well, you would you get your paper cut from, uh, you know, that he had a little bit of street cred to be able to say he flew in this thing. He goes, OK, OK, Mert, and you've got you. You look after him. Like, OK, great. So we go to Al-Assad and we're dropping our bombs. We rolled in, you know, coming off. And here's this guy's over here and he's just being a nice, smooth, just like at Pine Castle or at a, you know, he's not moving the jet around much at all. And there is a, an Iraqi gunner that has, you know, there's poof, 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 right behind him. He says, you know, move your jet. <laughs> anyway, so we get back to the ship and everything's fine. But that was that was a little bit of a, a, a memory jogger when you were talking about uh, things going on at Al Assad. That uh, it's wild, you know. It's, I mean, it, it it's wild, you know. Think about like what that place has been through, and then to me, the surreal piece is, you know, at some point, again, there was a swimming pool and tankers sitting there, just like it would be at Al Udeed at the Kayak, yeah. you know, and yeah and from dropping bombs on dropping bombs back on it it's just kind of it's wild it's real so yeah so that time period so is the chief navy and i don't know what's the correct term the head navy officer i I was just i happened to be the senior navy guy you know what and so the like the uh, and with that so you're worried about infrastructure rebuilding doing doing all of those things. What did that look like? Were you working as like the army Corps of civil well, engineers? Well, I wasn't rebuilding you know, like- stuff. And in fact, um, I didn't stay in that job very long. I was, I got there in November and, you know, I went, as I said, I went to the city council meeting in Fallujah. Um, That's wild. And later that, you know, a couple of weeks later, um, Caldwell come to me and goes, hey, you know you, how you said you know how to lead and you know how to build a team? That's what I need you to do. Oh, okay. So the comms, and this we're not talking six comms, but we're talking about public affairs, communications. So the comms section of this organization, uh, they had had a, some sort of an IG complaint or something, and then they'd done a survey, and it was a toxic um, environment. And part of the problem was there were just too many 06s. I mean, everybody had this feeling of, well, if he gets a good report card, I'm going to get a bad one. A lot of um, 
uh, you know, scarcity mentality or however you want to think of it. It was a toxic, I was oblivious. I didn't work with those people at the time. And so it was like, okay, there had been this IG complaint. We're, we're going to put you in there. And so the Christmas present that Caldwell gave to the comms section was me. And so you talk about discovery learning. Ow, that's hot. Ooh, that's sharp. I mean, Saddam was, was hanged. In, on December 28th or 30th or something of 2006, and they gooned it up. I think they decapitated him when they hung him. But we had captured a bunch of, uh, of uh, shoot, Iranian, um, I'm having a blank right now, but the you know Iranian infiltration into Iraq, uh, we caught these guys from the... Um, Jeez, how can I? Is it like the Iranian the the Iranian uh, guard? Yeah, or? what do you call those guys? Yeah, uh, Revolutionary Guard. Sorry, yeah, senior moment. So we capture these guys, right. and at the same time, these explosively formed penetrators that can just cut. I mean, they're it's a it's a precisely machined or cast thing that it sets off an explosive, and it has this molten jet of copper. It'll just go right through inches and inches of steel. It'll it'll go through anything, and there that's the whole Humvee up armored. I mean, I always right. felt that I was probably gonna if I was gonna die in Iraq, it was probably gonna be in a Humvee that was gonna flip over because these things are grossly overweight. Now they've got all this armor, and they're going, Ugh! you know, and you got these guardsmen from Illinois or something that are driving them, and everybody, and so you know. It'll be like, just relax, man. Come on, let's let's get there. Um, anyway, that's an aside. So I became, uh, a, I was a spokesman. And I kid around, uh, you know, my parents were married. I know both of my parents. I was not qualified, I thought, to, to do this job. <laughs> I'm being facetious. Um, <laughs> but it was, it was just, it, everything was new. It was the hardest year of my life. Uh, trying very hard not to be the story. You're just trying to and not be the everything's fine. It's getting better. Um, I caught the last three months of uh, George Casey's tenure as the commander of four star at multinational Iraq and multinational core Iraq MNFI multinational force in Iraq. Are you, are you having to do press briefings? Yeah. Is that what? So you're the one star that we all see on TV that's given the daily updates yeah. of how it's yeah. going. And so trying to be honest, what a good, you know, but at the same time, okay, you got your talking points. So I got the last three months of Casey's deal. tenure and then the first nine months of Petraeus's tenure. And what a sea change. Um, very different approach. You know, Casey, Abizade, those are guys all said, hey, you know what? We're the. We're the irritant. We are the infidel. We are the thing that's inflaming the situation. The sooner we get out of here, the better. Um, and they and Casey took President Bush's as they stand up, we'll stand down. So all of Casey's focus was on bringing Iraqi security forces up so we could leave. Um, now, notwithstanding that we had stood down everything that was the Iraqi army. We're working uphill because of some of the decisions that were made very early on by Bremer and those guys. 
uh, of we, we should have at least kept some sort of a structure of, you know, I, I'm not an expert on that, but I can tell you if you don't have if you're a young Iraqi male, you don't have a you don't have a hope uh, and you're trying to feed your family and somebody will give you 20 bucks to put an ID out there. You'll do it. Uh, yeah, because Brimmer in that group, I mean, it was like you said, very early on the initial and I am not an expert by any stretch of the means, but. It was like if you had any affiliation whatsoever. It was completely, you know, it would be like trying to run Germany without anybody who had ever worked in the Nazi organization. Yeah. No. If you were police, army, anything else. how to make the, you know, the place function. Strategic effects like, you know, electricity and plumbing and rule of law and all that stuff. So Petraeus gets there. And one thing that struck me. When I first got to uh, to Baghdad, was I expected it to be pretty austere? I mean, we were in the palace, but uh, you know, well, and so I'd been eating. There was a little kind of salad bar place that I would just go to eat instead of the big dining facility, the defac. So Thanksgiving's coming. I thought, you know what, I ought to, I ought to have a Thanksgiving meal. I'm gonna. So the first time I go to the defac um, is. Thanksgiving of, of 2006. And as I'm walking to the DFAC, there's this reverberating kaboom and this kind of conventional mushroom cloud. I mean, it's just a big, but there's, you know, you know, something horrible has happened over in Sadr City, 250 people killed by a truck bomb or something. So I go into the DFAC and it's surreal. I mean, they've got the pilgrims, mannequins of the pilgrims and the this cornucopia thing. And you got these skinny little Bangladeshi dudes that are slopping on huge portions of American Thanksgiving roast, you know, turkey and potatoes and dressing and gravy and stuff. And, you know, we were really deprived. We only had 28 of 31 Baskin Robbins flavors. I mean, it was, it was just crazy. Um, there was no, yeah. and you go across the, the street to the exchange and they had 44 inch plasma screen TVs. Who, who buys that? Who, who <laughs> why, is that? Why do you need yeah. this? I mean, and these, some of these contractors were doggone, they hadn't missed many meals in the DFAC. I mean, they come in there and they put their big old gut on the table and then they'd start, you know, making another trip to the ice cream machine. It was like, this is surreal. It's just bizarro. Um, there was one here's another now that I've just jogged that memory. Uh, I, I was running inside the perimeter one, one afternoon, always had a cell phone, you know, and they've got these little, I'm sure you saw them in Al-Assad or other places where, you know, you've got these cubicles of, of, uh, concrete, they're little shelters scattered throughout just in case there's a, a missile attack or something. So I'm running along and, you know, you've been to an air show or you've been out on the line where you hear somebody, just at the number, I mean, the crackling. And I stop and think, oh, there's some young buck that's thumping downtown. Where is he? And it's going, oh, shit, that's a rocket. <laughs> so I go get into this little shelter, and there were another couple of, you know, going by. I call him. I'm okay. It's fine. But those are just the kind of, you know, or another time. The Iraqi soccer team won somewhere. And so the word goes out, don't go outside. Celebratory gunfire is, you know, because the Iraqi soccer team 
uh, one. Anyway, it's it's a surreal spot. I do. That's funny you mentioned the DFAC. I remember Afghanistan, the DFAC, like like for St. Patrick's Day, like yeah, Bangladeshi yeah. servers, whatever it is. But they have it all decorated up. Yeah. Easter, you know, is another one. Christmas, and it's like the full nine yards. And it's like this is just this hey, is I odd. Think American it's, servicemen need and women need every good thing, but. Um, so I guess the point that I was kind of going towards and I got derailed on my own track here. So when Petraeus is coming, my talking points in January of 2007, um, Casey was not into the search. And my talking points were um, General Casey is not against additional troops, which is a pretty damning with faint praise. OK, he's not against There's a double negative there. Okay, he Casey didn't think they were necessary. Petraeus gets in there, and he wants everything. The whole the surge that was it was a different approach. It was a different way of doing it. And so all of the logisticians in the run up to Petraeus is taken over, and it's obvious that we're going to do this surge thing. They're wringing their hands. Uh, we're going to have to build all of these Fort Dusties out here. You know these Fort operating Fort operating bases everywhere. We're going to have to. And Petraeus gets there. He goes, no, 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 I don't I don't want to build any more infrastructure here. We're going to be out and about and in the midst of the Iraqi people. And so we'd have these little combat outposts where an American soldier, an Iraqi policeman and an Iraqi soldier would would be together. The Iraqi army had street creds and the confidence of the Iraqi people, the Iraqi police had been working for Saddam. So people didn't trust him and the American soldier. And these guys were living out in town and there was going, well, you're going to have more casualties. Well, the people that were in the beltway, I mean, the, uh, the belt around uh, the suburbs around Baghdad, it was like, Hey, where have you guys been, you know, for the last three years? Cause we'd just been hunkered down, focused on Iraqi security forces, you know, and it's like, well, we'll talk to you if you're going to stick around. But if you're not, then we won't. And it's like, no, but the way to, you know, so Petraeus's focus was very different of protect the people. And once you establish the fact that they know that you're there to protect them, they'll tell you, hey, that car doesn't belong here. It came from, a, you know, somewhere else. Um, so the, the surge was just a completely different uh, mindset in terms of how to how to tackle that problem. At that level, how long does that like that strategic type level vision? That, I mean, it's a bipolar swap almost. How does that translate down to the tactical level? Is there resistance? You know, at the oh seven oh eight. You know, the the like that that general officer rank to oh six rank. Is he having to clear people out? Like, or is it like, hey, the new boss hey, is in town, and this you know, is what the we're doing. The new boss is in town, and we're going to salute smartly and carry out the plan of the day. Uh, so there wasn't any, as far as I could tell, there was no passive aggression or, you know, passive resistance or anything like, okay, we're going to, it's pretty clear that doing the same thing over and over since 2003, four, five, and into six, we weren't getting any different results. When I first got there, I made the rounds. I'm talking to all of the, talk to the UN guys. I talked to our state department guys. And this one guy, he was pretty dried up. He'd been there for you know, quite a while and, and I said, wow, it looks like we've got an eventful year coming up. And he goes, yeah, we've had three eventful years <laughs> and we've had 
three or four, however long it was, one-year wars. You know, our our swap out would be, okay, those guys are left. The guys that are coming in said, ah, they don't know anything. And then they have to learn by the hard way. And then by the time they leave, the new guys come in and ah, they don't know anything. I mean, it was a kind of a – so the unity of effort over time from 2003 to six was focused on the Iraqi security forces with the asterisk or the caveat that we had done some serious harm to that effort to begin with because the Iraqi security forces that had been in existence had been disbanded. Um, and then when Petraeus got there and the, and the surge, that was a sea change in terms of, and it, they were results, you know, we were getting, uh, we were making, making progress on that. Of course, we pulled out completely in, at the end of 2011. And, and then guess what? Uh, ISIS reared its ugly head. So you'd had, you know, um, Al Qaeda of Iraq that morphed into, you know, ungoverned spaces like Syria, Yemen, Western Iraq. Those places just breed um, bad things. And so when the Iraqi security forces were just being torn apart by ISIS, you know, in what was it, in 14, you know, well, we weren't there. We were out and there was no way for us to. Uh, anyway, that, that's a whole separate. That's that's a different. Yeah, hopefully it's not foreshadowing for Afghanistan. Well, you know, but that is that's exactly what happened in Afghanistan, big- you know, and oh, don't get me started on that. That's a that's a painful subject. Uh, I think what's most ironically enough, uh, I did just interview yesterday um, Alex Pelbath, who was the air mission commander. He was the last C-17 that took off out of mm-hmm. Afghanistan uh, doing the evacuation there. And you know, just hearing um, hearing that, it's it's a, it's very interesting, you know. It was painful. Uh, I For anybody who's poured sweat and blood into this trying to trying to do the do that job uh i was almost nauseated i mean i was sick to my stomach that's what i think a lot of us he told two two aspects in that in that story he told many aspects that 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 were profound but you know having spent a lot of time there and i think we all this is something that's very frustrating because you know how we cleared the runway you know, after the initial kind of just chaos there, like the 15th, 16th, 17th, he goes, it was the Taliban. We had to work with the Taliban. He goes, got, you know, the 82nd Airborne got there. Uh, the Apaches couldn't clear the runway. The 82nd Airborne couldn't clear the runway. It was the Taliban in their white robes with their canes beating people off the runway. And he said, the, the leaving Afghanistan, you know, it's this night, Xville. There was a group of Taliban that jumped the fence and he goes, you know, everything's blacked out. You're on NVGs. We turn to take the runway and you see them over the fence and they're just waving. He goes, you know, if they knew what the middle finger was, that's what it would be. But that was their, their send off there. You know, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a whole nother thing. Time will tell how that plays out, but my gut reaction, not a good thing. I agree. I agree. So sorry, did no, I no, there, it's, but yeah, I, it, I, that, that's a rabbit hole I could go down very easily, but that's another day's conversation. Flying the, is much cleaner. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, it's simple. Give me a, give me a target, give me objective, yeah. give me a mission. 
you know, and that's while you're at a, a tactical level flying missions, obviously there's strategic level implications that can quickly occur um, at that, but yeah, not always black. It's a dynamic situation, but you know, Hey, these, I have the rules of engagements. I'm, to, you know, I'm have the authority to make decisions. And I'm going to go out there and, and act appropriately yeah. do so. Not have to necessarily always play games, but so you obviously see the, the transition that time period in Iraq, you mentioned Petraeus comes in. And again, for those listening, I'm thinking, as you mentioned, you know, we didn't have where everyone's driving around in light skinned Humvees. So then there, and there was no, you know, people were missing body armor. I remember stories of those days where family members were buying body armor for their loved ones, sending them overseas. Uh, they're Jerry rigging Humvees to up armor. But then, you know, the advent of the MRAP then comes to light and they, you know, start going through this process. Um, I think that, and that's probably one, you know, one contributing factor to a fighter pilot shortage in the air force is during that time frame, as a lot of the money gets sucked into the army for yeah. the surge for MRAPs and things like that, you don't have as many guys and gals going through fighter training. Um, it's just one, one of the things, which is an interesting, you know, consequential result of balancing budgets, yeah. et cetera. But. So I, I left Iraq at the end of 2007 and then went to the strike group. Uh, so I got command of the Harriest Truman strike group. And in fact, joined them while deployed. So I was back in the region in 2008 um, as dad now on the Harriest Truman. And that was, <laughs> is that, that was a, a lot. Is that a two, is that well, a two-star bill? It's a two-star bill. I was a one-star. I made my, I got my second star while I was in, in command of the strike group. Um, so okay. came back from that, spent about a year in the strike group command, and then got this oh, awesome. Well, I got checked back out in the Hornet and Super Hornet. So that was good. And then I, uh, so then I got this, hey, we want you to go out to Fallon to be the, the dad out at uh, the Naval Strike and your Warfare Center. And so I was a commander at Fallon uh, for about a year. And once again, I'm current. So I've been flying the, the Hornet and Super Hornet. And, you know, that's the there's something really wonderful to be uh, a grandfather still getting into an airplane with ejection seats. And afterburners and going <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And then after about a year at in Fallon in Nevada, um, I wound up going to Fifth Fleet. I got a third star and was Fifth Fleet commander in Bahrain from 2010 to 12. And, um, you know, the the. Arab Spring and all the unrest and the stuff that was going on in the region. Uh, that was that was my tenure, and it was it was interesting. And it was challenging, but what a what an amazing uh, time to have a chance to serve. Uh, well, I know we talked last podcast too. I think you know me going. I was going out the door at the beginning uh, before Operation Hair Resolve was even named, and obviously you're involved um, with that. Can you talk to me as an Air Force guy and educate me? So as a strike group commander, what what is that like? So and the then, strike group commander is responsible for the function of the entire carrier strike group. So you've got a carrier, you've got a replenishment ship, you've got a handful of uh, guided missile destroyers. Uh, you'll have a an associated submarine that's in kind of uh, associated support, not necessarily always assigned to you. Um, so about 7,500 8,000 sailors, something like that. So the carrier and the air wing, uh, and then you've got four long ball hitting O6s that are working for you. The CO of the ship is, is the captain of the ship. CAG 
is the guy that's responsible for the air wing. You've got the air defense commander, always a uh, surface warfare guy, the CO typically of the Ticonderoga class uh, cruiser. And then you've got the uh, the Desron, the destroyer squadron commander, and he's also a surface warfare guy. And so it's your job to now to make these guys you know work together and ensure that you're doing all of the things, being at the right place, doing doing the right things at the right time. With at a it's a, it's a new level, you know. Being CAG was I kind of knew what was going on, and then you get to be right. tri group commander, and you go, okay, I got even more. I have a better understanding of, of kind of what's going on. Um, I again, I always make a lot of jokes about landing on boats. Uh, something I just don't want to do. It sounds terrible. It's, but it's the most I can exciting envision, thing you can do with your clothes on, man. <laughs> I don't know. You and I might have different. We will agree to disagree. Um, I had my buddy Feed on here talking about landing. You know, in a thunderstorm on the boat with no gas. You know, the rolling pitching deck. I'm just like that. That. That sounds absolutely yeah. terrifying to me. Um, but you know, as the air wing commander, to never having been that, nor will I be, but I can envision, yeah, you're you understand air warfare and, and how that goes. When you become the strike group commander, you're mixing a little bit more boat life into it and moving that around. But when you mentioned like a submarine, I'm assuming that's like an attack a submarine that is there for protection and defense of the strike group, depending on how that moves around. But I mean, that's something as a pilot, you probably never thought about as an O three or an O four, what this guy is doing out here floating around and, and how that plays into the moving base, you know, of Shaw air force base, a fighter base, probably 5,000 people or yeah, so. Well, you know, the, runway, you know, one of the, cool, one of the illustrations, thing. you know, at the very beginning of the anti ISIS campaign, we're working, you know, we CENTCOM are working on getting the overflight and um, base access in the region to carry ordnance and to drop it into an, you know, drop it in an Arab neighbor's nation. Um, and so the only people who could drop ordnance at the beginning of that were the guys on the carrier because there was no permission slip that was needed. This, there's an American flag that flies on, it was the George H.W. Bush, as it turns out, that's uh, conducting up. And so for the first, I don't know, probably six or eight weeks, uh, it, the only ordinance that's being released was, was coming from Navy airplanes, just based on the overflight and, uh, uh, base access issue and, you know, being able to load ordinance and then take it someplace else. Uh, so carriers, they're not the end all be all, but they're, they're a facilitator back in the, back in the nineties. Um, you know, when the, the whole thing in the Balkans was heating up. The Italians were not real shot in the arm about using Vincenza as a place to to, to fly out of for NATO and for the U.S. Air Force. And so it's like, okay, well, we're going to just do this with aircraft carriers then. And it's like, oh, okay, well, if you're going to do it anyway, you might as well go ahead and fly out of Vincenza. So, I mean, there's some, there's some <laughs> synergies that, that come along with – it's not just one, it's not just the other, but it's the, the combination of the two that, that create that, that capability. Um, yeah. So projection. Anyway, I finished the, the, the fifth fleet tour was fascinating. It was really, um, Jim Mattis was my boss. I'm a, I'm a Mattis trained man. I met Mattis for the first time in, uh, Ramadi, uh, uh, Ramadi. Um, there was a shake fest 
out there, more of this stuff that we were trying to do in terms of establishing a rapport with the, the Sunnis and uh, kind of turning the shakes away from, you know, the Al Qaeda side and bringing them back to the, you know, to working with us. But so I'd met, I'd met Mattis first in Ramadi when he was the three-star Marine out there in charge of what was going on in, in Western Iraq. And then he wound up being my boss. He was CENTCOM when I was fifth fleet. Petraeus was originally going to be CENTCOM. Um, and well, in fact, he was CENTCOM, but then McRaven, there was a, a derogatory article in Rolling Stone about McRaven. McRaven got fired. Uh, Petraeus, this was the summer of 2010. Because was McRaven's article about Obama? That's what I was like. You know, very critical about the Obama administration and that automatic. And then so Petraeus was CENTCOM. He had been the four star in Iraq and then he went to be CENTCOM. And then this was sort of a demotion or at least a lateral four star thing where he now took over in Afghanistan. And Mattis had originally, he was going to retire. He was at uh, the Joint Forces Command and Mattis didn't have any place to go. Suddenly, Petraeus goes to Afghanistan and Mattis didn't become CENTCOM. Uh, so some big, you know, big uh, dominoes that were falling at that time. Uh, then anyway, came back to the Navy staff for a year as the N3 and 5 and then uh, finished out the Navy journey there at uh, in Tampa as the deputy at CENTCOM. Quite, it was quite it a, was a great ride. I'd go back and do it all again. I'd, I'd be a little smarter the second time. <laughs> well, I know I did ask you, you know, if you found 15, 16 year old walking down the street, could ask you again. But um, what do you find yourself doing in your free time now? Are you retired? retired? Uh, yeah, I'm or- consulting. I'm writing. I'm uh, working out. I'm playing the piano, traveling. Um, okay. I don't know how I squeeze that pesky thing called the job into my life before. <laughs> I, I'm very, I'm busy and it's a good, these are the good old days. These are the, this is the sweetest chapter in our life. It's, yeah. I love it. If you went back and you said you do it a second time, you do it different. What, what would you change? Well, I would have taken the, the shot on that second MIG over H3. I would have gone that's down right, there yeah. and, and that's, you know, oh, that's tough. gunned him or something. I, I didn't know who he was and I didn't want to get mixed up with him, but I would, if I knew then, if I knew then what I know now, I would have, I would have bagged him. Um, Wonder, I wonder if it was a gear problem or if it was a uh, honeypot there. Well, there were there was more than one. I only I only had a lock on one guy, but there were there were some altitude splits in that. What else would I do differently? Um, well, I'd just be a little bit smarter. You know, I, I loved what I was doing. I really enjoyed the people and the mission. Um, after my first cruise in 1980 in 81. <laughs> Our oldest son was then just just under, I guess he was a little, a year, almost a year old. And he didn't know me when I got home. I mean, you know, he was, who is this guy that's pestering mom? And um, I said, man, there's got to be a better way to make a living. Um, but over time, you, you know, you kind of grow into the, I loved the flying. I loved the camaraderie. Uh, I just finished a reunion of this Golden Eagles outfit in San Antonio. And I mean, 
guys like I, I'm not worthy to be in it, but I mean, guys like Jim Lovell and Neil Armstrong and Gene Cernan, um, you know, Jim Stockdale. I mean, incredible icons of of uh, aviation lore. Uh, and there's just a great it's just a great crowd. There's no other there's no other that I'm aware of. There's no other um, lane of life that has that kind of camaraderie and that kind of. Uh, and you can pick up with an old friend 40 years later and you're right there where you were as J.O.'s before, you know. Yeah, it's interesting. I was actually just having this very same conversation this weekend with someone who flies C-17s and uh, we had never met before, but, you know, it's kind of going through this exact same um, conversation. I don't know if it's, you're obviously faced with a lot of adversity and not, there's some, there's some tough times, right? But you're doing yeah. it together, yeah. which then, yeah. you know, kind of bonds you, but then it makes the times that are good uh, yeah. that much better. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. Well, sir, thank you again for joining me uh, on the podcast. It was a pleasure to be able to talk to you again and just hear a little bit more. I'm, again, I know we're probably still just scratching the surface. So thanks well, for taking the bet. time. Whatever on target.